You ever get those flashbacks on, on your phone or on, fa- on your Facebook feed that kind of take you back and they, they show you some picture of something that happened years ago? You know, when I was a little younger, I'd get those uh, flashbacks and they'd hardly make me pause. You know, I didn't really stop or anything. I was like, okay, well, let's just go to the next thing. But now that I'm getting a little older, every once in a while, I get one of these pictures of my kids when they were a baby or they were one or two or three or four. And all of a sudden now I kind of stop in my tracks. And for a moment, I just kind of relive the experience. My, my, my mind just kind of travels down those memory lanes again, you know, and just kind of get to relive it for a moment. And there's something charming about just going back and just, just remembering of what, what, what it was like when they were babies or, or a trip we took or something, something special like that. And, and my soul within me just kind of rejoices over the, the purity of those days when they were young, the innocence of it all. And you know when, when kids are small and they do something, right? They say something you really shouldn't say. They do something they really shouldn't do. You know, when they're young, when they're babies, you just kind of laugh and you smile. Ah, oh, they're children, right? But as they grow and as they get a little older, well, you don't want them to still act like babies, do you? No, no, we, we want them to mature into adulthood. So no longer do we laugh and smile and say, oh, that's so cute, you know, they're just babies. No, 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 now, now, no, 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 we correct behavior. We want to see maturity because there's also something exciting and really thrilling about seeing them mature into the men and women of God who God has made them to be. You know, in the same way that there's natural childhood, there's also spiritual childhood, Okay, and in the same way that there's uh, maturity as we grow physically, there's also maturity as we grow spiritually. And so as we as parents, as we look at our kids, we want to see them mature and to grow into the men and women who God has designed them to be. But in the same way, God looks at us, his children, and says, I want to see you grow up into maturity. I want to see you to mature to be everything that I intend for you to be. And so he longs for maturity for us, his people. And so because of that, we're taking a pause during this kind of Thanksgiving season, and we're focusing on five key questions, five questions that we really believe that, hey, if we're asking these intentionally, that if we have some people in our lives who are holding us accountable, that we're going to see growth, that it's going to help the maturing process that we would look more and more like Jesus Christ. We're taking a little bit of pause from First Peter, and we're doing this side series during this Thanksgiving season. And by the way, I need to mention, I think I can speak on behalf of the entire pastoral staff. Thank you for your appreciation of us. It is a joy to serve and really uh, to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And so we, we appreciate just being able to do that uh, arm in arm with all of you. And, but as we talk about maturing, you know, part, it's, it's our hope, it's our prayer that all of us would mature into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're, that's why we're kind of taking a stroll down this series. And the first question that we want to look at is, so how are we being changed by Jesus? Right? How is Jesus changing your life? How is he impacting your life? What evidences can you point to to say, you know what? I look a little bit more like Jesus now than I did a year ago. Right? I see some growth here. I see some maturity here that I'm, I'm thinking differently. I'm living differently. I look more like Jesus now than I did a year ago. How are you being changed by Jesus? Um, to to kind of set the stage for this, uh, I, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 
I should also mention here at Central, we, we take these questions so seriously that we've formed these missional teams. We just kind of get together, groups of about three to five uh, men or three to five women, and we just kind of hold each other accountable to these questions. So for this first question, let's go ahead and jump in. First uh, Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So, the Apostle Paul, he's warning the church of Corinth not to stay in the infant stage. Okay, he said, I don't want you to stay as babies. I was giving you milk so that you would grow up, but now I'm looking at you and you still need milk. Like he longs for them to get to this place where they need solid food, but they still need milk. You know, in just a little bit, the the church in Corinth, they're going to point to their gifts and they're going to say, hey, look, you know, we were so gifted and we got these gifts and whatever. And listen, it's not your gifting that grows you and matures you. All of you as a church, you're phenomenally gifted, right? You're empowered by the Spirit who's phenomenally gifted you, but it's not your gifting that matures you. It's living in step with the Spirit that matures you. And so how do you see some effects that you're growing up? Well, all of a sudden, you begin to love the way Jesus loves. Oh, you're growing up, right? You begin to have patience the way Jesus has patience and he's long-suffering with us. And we say, oh, you're growing up. There's a goodness about you, and that he demonstrated this goodness to others. You say, oh, that's how Jesus does it. You're growing up, right? You're living in step with the Spirit, and you see that, and there's signs of maturity. And what Paul, he's looking at the church in Corinth, and he's saying, oh, I so long for you to be mature, because there's things that I want to impart to your bones. I just want to instill this in you. But you're still like babies. You're still infants. You're not maturing. Jesus isn't changing you the way... that he desires to change you, and there's this maturity that's still needed. And so he says, here's some things that I'm seeing. Here's, here's some attributes to your life that are concerning to me. They're bothering to me because they reveal that you're still immature, that you're still a child, you're still a baby, when I so long for you to be a spiritual adult. And the, one of the first things he says is, what I see in your life is jealousy. There's jealousy in the church. And what jealousy is, it's just one what somebody else has, Right? It's, man, I can't really be excited for you when you get a promotion or advancement. I can't really celebrate that because I wish that was mine. I can't really be excited for you. I can't really bless you and praise God for what he's doing in your life because I wish all that was in my life. Like, I'm jealous. I I want all that. You know, when you think about children, you never have to teach a child to be jealous, you know? Right? You get two children in a room, you give one this toy and another a different toy. Sooner or later, like at least one of them is going to want that other toy, right? Doesn't matter what it is. Like, I want what they're having. Right? They can no longer be satisfied with their own toy. They got to have that toy. Right? Or you get them lunch, you know, and one has a hot dog and the other has a slice of pizza. And what's the child doing? Mom, Dad, I want the pizza. Like, why do I have the hot dog? I want pizza. They can no longer be satisfied with what they have. They want what someone else has. You never have to teach a child to be jealous, okay? You never have to ch- teach a child to be selfish. All that comes natural. That's, that's immaturity. What do you have to teach a child? To be selfless, right? To be thankful for what you have and to be excited for what others have and what's going on in their lives. That's what you have to teach children. And so Paul says it's the same thing here in the church. 
that you're unable to be excited for other people because you're simply looking and saying, I wish I had that. And so there's jealousy and it's a sign of immaturity. God is saying, hey, mature people, what do they do? They celebrate other people's successes. They, they celebrate even when they don't have it themselves, right? They're, because they're not thinking selfishly. They're thinking others-minded. And so when awesome things are happening for other people, yeah, that's great. I don't look at this and say, well, that's what I want. No, no, no. It's about others. Mature believers, they practice that. But Paul's saying, oh, I'm so bothered by you, church, because you're immature. You're acting like babies. You're still just thinking about yourself. He says there's another sign, too, that God's not having the changing effect in your life that he desires to have, and that's strife. There's all this strife. Strife is something that comes from within. And what strife does is it makes you easily offended and very slow to forgive. Right? The littlest things can set you up. Oh, man, that really, I can't believe that. They just walked right by me. I don't even feel like they greeted me. You know? Well, did you greet them? No, but that's not the point. You know? I mean, you know, but that, that's how we feel, right? Just, it's the littlest stuff that can set us off. That's a sign of strife. And, and so you're easily offended. You're also very, very slow to forgive. Mature believers, on the other hand, they aren't easily offended. Things, you know, we give people the benefit of the doubt, we, we give grace to others. So we were not offended easily. At the same time, we're very quick to forgive because we know that we've been forgiven. We know everything we've been forgiven of and how Jesus, even when we were his enemies, he demonstrated his love by dying on the cross for us. So we're very quick to forgive. That's maturity. And Paul's looking at the church in Corinth and he's saying, I so long for you to be at this place of maturity, but you're still infants You're still immature. You're still holding these grudges. You're still very easily offended. And then he says something very interesting. He says, you're behaving like mere humans, right? You're you're simply behaving like people. And you want to say, well, Paul, we are, right? I mean, we are mere humans. And you know what Paul would say to that? No, no, no. Not you, church. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? You're, You're sealed by the Spirit. You're empowered by the Spirit. So live in step with the Spirit, You're no longer mere humans. The Spirit of God lives in you, so walk in step with the Spirit. See, their issue is they're so worldly focused that they're not heaven focused. They're so focused on themselves and their own interests that they aren't focused on God and God's interests. And so where do they leave themselves? In a place of immaturity. He starts, actually, if you want to keep reading the passage in verse 4, he says, just look at you all. You know, some of you, you're claiming, oh, I'm, a, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. You've all got your tribes. Where does immaturity take you? To a place of disunity? To a place of dis- divisiveness? To a place of picking favorites? I mean, you can imagine the church at that time, right? And, and someone saying, oh, man, my favorite is when Paul preaches. I mean, he's the best preacher. I love it when Paul preaches because Paul, man, he just goes deep. He grounds you in the doctrine and everything. Oh, man, I love Paul. And then someone else saying, no, 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 not Paul, not Paul. I mean, he's fine, whatever, but Peter. I mean, Peter's the best. Peter spent three years with Jesus before Paul even showed up, you know. And he had all these experiences. And man, when Peter preaches, he's so relatable, you know. I, I mean, Peter, he just kind of gets us at another level. I just love Peter. And then somebody else said, no, 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 I mean, Paul and Peter, fine, whatever. But Apollos, 
I mean, he's the preacher, right? When he gets up there and he starts preaching, that's the guy. Because just even his accent, you know, he's from Egypt. And so when he speaks, he just, you know, he has this gravitas, even by the way he talks. And when he speaks, man, he talks about the expansion of the gospel and how the gospel is going forth into the other parts of the world. I mean, it's just incredible. Apollos, do you see the divisiveness? And you know what? We do the same thing today, don't we? Hey, who's your favorite? Who do you like the best, by the way? You know, what's your favorite, what's your favorite church? Who's your favorite pastor? What's your favorite minister? All that. That's immaturity, Paul's saying. And this, this is the carnal desires of the flesh, and we love to go to these places where we create divisiveness and disunity and picking favorites. And what Paul's saying, no, no, mature believers, they do something different. They long for the unity of the church. They long to keep the family together as much as possible to make sure that the family is focused on the right things and who we're called to be as much as possible. Not just these tertiary issues or all the things that can cause divisiveness and bitterness and grudges and stuff like that. No, no, let's focus on Jesus Christ because he's our Lord and Savior. That's maturity. And Paul, he's looking at the church in Corinth and he's saying, I so long for you to mature. I so long to see Jesus change your life and to see this evidence of maturity taking place. But you're still babies. You're still immature. You, you need the work. You need to grow up in who Jesus has made you to be. I've still got to give you milk. I still got to go back to the elementary teachings of God's word. But what I want to impart in your bones is this fact that you are a disciple maker that God has redeemed to be his emissary, his ambassador to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations to make disciples who they themselves are make disciples. I want to equip you to do that. But right now I still got to ground you in the foundational stuff because you're still not getting it. You're still babies. And so you can feel the hurt in Paul as he's writing to this church because he wants so much more for them. And he's got a church full of infants, and it's bothering him. He wants to see change. And so that's one of the questions that we want to be asking one another, is how is Jesus changing you? I mean, what can you point to? What evidences do you have in your life where you can say, you know what? Man, I I know I'm different because I think this way when used to I I would think that way. I live this way when used to, I would live that way. You know, I, here's some changes that I can just point to. I know that's Jesus, it's not me. I just didn't come up with this. It's Jesus. I want to take you to a few, uh, four key kind of evidences that you will begin to see. These aren't the only four or anything, but I just want to give you four evidences that you will begin to see in your life when Jesus is changing you. Okay, so here we go. Uh, the first one is if you have a true relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the things that you'll begin to see is you'll, you'll be grounded in your identity. Okay? You will know who you are. You'll be secure in your identity. Here's the thing. When you grow up without Christ, what, what begins to happen usually for most people who grow up without Christ? Well, people let you down. People sin against you. You experience the pain and the hardship and the suffering of the world. And because of that, what do we do? Well, we begin to become a little bit guarded. We begin to put some walls up. You know, I might let a few people in, but you kind of got to earn it. And, and there's just some places, hey, we don't, we don't want anyone to come in here. This is just, I, want, I just want to be safe. And so we crave safety, security, being guarded. And the focus, the heart of all that is self. We're focusing on self. 
When you grow up in Jesus Christ, what happens? Now I'm grounded in who he says I am. And now I'm, that frees me not to be defined by what other people are saying or, what, or even what happens. I'm now free to love others as Christ loved them. So I'm secure in my identity. You know, Jesus was very secure in his identity. He, he spoke numerous times, 18 times in the New Testament, when he would say, this is who I am. Okay, you have the, the profound, beautiful I am statements. When Jesus says, I am, I am, I am. And so there's no doubt, okay, he's the Messiah. He's Lord. There's no doubt Jesus knows who he is. Paul, at the same time, he's very grounded in who he is in Jesus Christ. And the basis for that is that Jesus Christ is the foundation. I mean, this is what he writes even in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11. Uh, Paul writes this, and he says, We are God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's saying, hey, the foundation of my life is Jesus Christ. He's foundational. Uh, And for us, what that means is that Jesus is the head of the church. He's He's the cornerstone of the family of God. And he's the foundation, or ought to be the foundation of all our lives as individual believers. And so he's building this spiritual building, the church, us, all of us, uh, that God knows will stand the test of time because it's built upon his son, Jesus Christ, who is eternal and he's perfect. And so he's the, he's the steady beam, the steady rock, the steady foundation that when the storms of life come, we're able to with, withstand all that. We're able to stay strong because we're grounded in him. Here's the thing. Jesus never changes, right? God never changes. We change all the time. I change my opinions on things all the time. My convictions sometimes change. My behaviors change. My reactions change. Things like that. I change. God never changes. So he's a firm foundation. He's a steady foundation. If I try to build my life on myself, it's going to crumble. It's going to fall apart. If I try to define my own identity, I'm going to be in for some rough waters because I change. I'm inconsistent. God never changes. He's perfectly consistent. He's the firm foundation. And so here's the deal. We've got to have confidence in our identity. You have confidence in who Jesus says you are and who God says you are. Um, you know, in the New Testament, it spends a lot of time talking about, hey, here's who you are. Here's who you are. Here's who you are. We saw it in First Peter, right? There's a beautiful section. Hey, this is who you are. And so consequently, as a church, we spend a lot of time talking about knowing your identity and who you are. Because if you don't know who you are, what happens? The world will tell you. The world will tell you who you are. And they will manipulate you. And they will deceive you. And they will lie to you. And before long, when the world tells you who you are and how to feel and how to define life, what happens? You begin living a lie. Because you define life incorrectly. You define yourself incorrectly. And when you've got a wrong definition of life and you've got a wrong definition of who you are, life starts to spin out of control because you've got the wrong identity. One of the key changes that you'll see in your life as Jesus is changing you is there is this conviction in who you are in Jesus Christ that you know that, hey, the one who created you defines you and you know it. Another one of the key evidences that your life is being changed by Jesus is that you have a purpose in life that is clear and it's defined. Jesus said in John 18, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. In other words, I know my purpose. 
And so the question for us is, do you know why you're here? I mean, do you know why you're living and breathing? Do you know why God has you in this place at this time? Do you know where he's taking you and where he's sending you? Do you know God's purpose in your life? Um, you remember when Jesus was 12 and his parents, uh, Joseph and Mary, they, they took him to the Passover festivities and they're celebrating and, and all this. And then as they leave, there's this big caravan leaving Jerusalem. All these people are leaving together and uh, they, leave Mary, or they leave Jesus back in Jerusalem, not intentionally, but and better said, really, Jesus just stayed, okay? So Jesus stays in Jerusalem, and a couple days later, they figure it out. Oh, man, Jesus isn't with the kids where he's supposed to be. And, you know, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Nobody's seen Jesus. So then they go, they, they, they go back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus in the temple courts. And he's questioning the Pharisees, and he's asking the most profound, deep questions. It's incredible, the knowledge that he's revealing just in the questions that he's asking. And his parents come to him. They're like, Jesus, why, you know, why are you here? What are you doing? And you remember his response? Well, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And I was, don't, don't you know that I'm going to be about my father's business? I mean, this is why I'm here, to do the will of the one who sent me. I'm, I'm here to do the father's business. Even at age 12, Jesus knew who he was, and he knew his purpose in life, what he was here to do. And over and over and over again, throughout his ministry, Jesus continued to define his purpose. Here's, here's why I'm here. To seek and to save the lost. Here's why I'm here. To set the captives free. Here, here's why I'm here. And he says it over and over again. And then what else he says? Now, here's why you're here. You're here to go make disciples. You're here to be my ambassadors. You're here to be my emissaries. Right? You're here to be proclaimers of the good news of the gospel. And so he saved us for a purpose. And one of the things, one of the evidences that Jesus is changing you is there's this conviction of your purpose in life. There's just, you just know your raison d'etre, your reason for being. You just got it. Boom. This is what I'm about. Okay? You live with purpose. You know you're beginning to live with purpose as your priorities begin to shift. Now, that's, that's one of the things that you begin to see. Okay, my, my priorities are beginning to shift. One of those priorities, man, I just want to study God's Word. You know, maybe before you kind of read the Word because you felt like it was the right thing to do. Maybe it was almost like eating your vegetables. You know, well, I know I should do this. So let me spend some time in the Word. But all of a sudden, you begin to crave the Word. I mean, you want to study, not just read it, but you want to study it because you want to know it. You, he's the one who's he's the lover of your soul, and you want to know Him deeply. And you want to be able to obey him. And so there's just this craving to be in the word of God. One of the other things you see in the life of Jesus is he's often, during the course of his ministry, he's often retreating to solitary places just to have moments where he can just pray to the Father and commune with the Father because he wants that time. That's, that's another thing that you'll notice in your life is, hey, I, I just long for this intimacy with God. That there's times I, I just know I just need to be alone. I just need to pray. Right? And so you long for that. Another thing that you begin to notice is there's just a desire of your heart that you want to please God. Okay? I just want to be pleasing to him. I want my life to be this beautiful aroma unto the Lord. Everything I do, I want it to be in step with the Spirit. I want him to be honored by the way that I live. And when God the Father looked at Jesus, right at Jesus' baptism, what did he say? This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And we want that. You begin to want that. Crave that. I, I want Jesus to be pleased with how I'm living today. I want him to be able to say that about me because I'm living in step with his spirit. 
See, watch this. You'll begin to draw from the word of God in the presence of God in order to please God. That's a sign that your purpose in life is beginning to shift, okay? There's some intentionality now with how I'm living because I'm drawing from the word of God in the presence of God in order to please God. Here's another evidence that uh, Jesus is changing your life. What happens is you begin to seek God's will for your life. That becomes a key priority. I want, I want to seek God's will for my life. What is he calling me to do? So John five nineteen it says that Jesus couldn't do anything by himself. He could only do what he saw his father doing. Listen, you look around our world, you look around our culture, we got a whole lot of people who are tired. we got a whole lot of people who are anxious, who are depressed, who are burnt out, all this kind of stuff. It's on the rise everywhere. And why? Because we got a whole lot of people trying to live life under their own power. And we've got all these distractions and all these worries of life, and we crumble under the weight of trying to make every, hold everything up ourselves when we try to live life under our own power. We've got to live life under the power of Jesus Christ, empowered by him, walking with his spirit, seeking his will for our lives. Uh, Paul, what he's saying to the church in Corinth, part of it is this, hey, that you need to allow the power of God to live in you. Because you're focused just on yourselves. You're squabbling amongst yourselves. You've got this divisiveness. You need to live out the will of God. See, the will of God funnels the power of God through your life. And you begin to start asking the question, okay, God, what is your will for my life? And maybe you're wondering that right now. Steve, how do I know God's will for my life? You know, is this God's will? I don't know. You begin to know God's will for your life when you're in the Word and you're studying it. Okay? You're studying it, and then you're being shaped by it. Your mind's being renewed. Your, your, the condition of your heart is being shaped. You say, okay, this is how I should think. This is how I should respond. This is how I should feel. This is how I should react to these different situations. And then what happens, you begin to see these situations kind of come up in your life. And you're reminded. God just kind of brings a verse to mind. You say, oh, yeah, that's how I should respond. You know, that's a conversation that I need to have. This is, this is how I should think here. Right? That's, that's God's will for your life. Another way is you have friends in your life who will come and they will speak the scripture to you. Not just man's empty foolishness. I mean the scripture to you. And they'll counsel you with the scriptures. And, and all of a sudden, hey, I must need that. Right? And then you see a situation. and Oh, okay, i got to apply that. And another way that you begin to know God's will for your life is sometimes the spirit just kind of nudges you. It just kind of tugs you. And you might not even be able to put words to it. But you just all of a sudden, you just kind of have this sense. Like, okay, the Spirit is telling me I need to go to this person, right? Here's an open door. I need to have this conversation. I need to, I need to, I need to do this. And, and you will begin to have that once in a while. And it's, it's God's will for your life. And what happens is you begin to crave, God, I just simply want to do your will. I don't want it to be my will. Like, what, what is your will for me? And it doesn't matter how things are going. When things are good, I want to do your will. When things are tough, I want to do your will. When it's pleasurable, when it's painful, uh, when you're being changed by Jesus, you know that your identity is secure. You have purpose in how you're living, and you have this overarching desire, I want to do God's will for my life because you know that God's will is the very best thing for your life. Sometimes that, encourages, that invites some pain. Sometimes it invites some suffering, some hardship. 
But you know what? That's pain, that suffering, that hardship. When other believers see believers, and when even non-believers see believers suffer Christianly, go through hardships Christianly, follow God through storms of life Christianly, sometimes like that's the biggest testimony that there can possibly be. That even through all you've got going on, there's still joy. There's still peace. There's still hope. There's still love. There's still a goodness about you. It speaks monumentally. And for someone who's being changed by Jesus, that's the overarching goal of life. I just I want to do God's will for my life. You seek his will. I'll tell you something else, though. When Jesus is changing you, there's a shift in perspective that happens. You develop an eternal perspective. Right? It's no longer just temporary, the here and now. Right? No, no, now I'm focused eternally. So I can weather the, the storms in the here and now because my focus is on eternity. I can weather the pain of the here and now. I can weather the ups and downs of the here and now because my focus is on eternity. And one of the things that we know as believers is God is preparing for us a beautiful city that he's taking us to. And one day, someday, we will be there. We'll be gathered around the throne and we will, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. We'll take our crowns. We'll throw them at his feet. There will be there. Someday we will see the Lamb's book of life. And if you know Jesus Christ, your name will be in there. It will be inked by his blood. You're secure. You're safe. And you know that is happening someday. And because you know of that someday, that influences how you live today. That there's an eternal perspective in how you live today. And the thing about the eternal perspective, what it tells you is God's owner. He's creator and he's owner and he's Lord of all. So I'm simply a steward. Everything I have, my, my gifts, my, my talents, my, my treasure, what kind of money, assets, or what, any, anything like that, uh, any kind of talent, skill, passion, I'm a steward of how God made me and how he's gifted me and the resources that he's given me. Ultimately, it's not mine, it's all his. So how am I going to steward my life in a way that honors him? That's evidence of an eternal perspective. And one of the key things, as you begin to think that way and you begin to have that perspective, you know what begins to rise up is a love, love for God and also a love for others. So all of a sudden, there's this, there's this yearning in your heart for other people to know Jesus the way you know him, to see other people transformed the way that you've been transformed, to see other people's minds renewed the way your mind has been renewed because you want to see them walk in step with the Spirit. And you know what that is? That's eternity calling out from your soul, saying, this is what life is about. This is how I ought to live. That's eternity speaking in you, crying out for the soul of humanity. That's eternal perspective. And we want to be people who develop eternal, an eternal perspective because it's the key evidence that Jesus is at work in your life. Listen, all of this comes from relationship with Jesus. Some of you maybe have a Nicodemus-type spirit, a Nicodemus-type attitude, and which basically says, hey, I mean, Nicodemus was this Pharisee who was conflicted because he's doing a lot of religious stuff. Okay? He's reading the scriptures, saying, God, well, you know, I want to be impressed by the amount of Bible study that I'm doing. And he's doing religious activity. God wants to be impressed by all the stuff that I'm doing. But he still experienced this confliction because he's missing the relationship. And he knows that something is missing. Maybe you've been doing a whole bunch of religious activity, 
but you're missing the relationship. One of the things you need to know is that God definitely, uh, uh, desperately wants to know you. He wants to know you. It's not just how do you get to know God. It's God wants to know you. And how has he demonstrated that he wants to know you? That when you were in the midst of your sin, when you were trying to earn your way to heaven, or when you were just living life for yourself, whatever else, that God the Father sent his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that you could never live, to die on the cross for your sin, to rise again, defeating sin and death on your behalf, and then to give you the righteousness of his Son so that you would no longer be clothed in your sin, no longer simply forgiven of your sin. That would be great, you know, take you back to neutral, but he does one up on that. He gives you the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus. And this is because he wants to know you. He wants you a part of his family. And when you know that, when when there's a relationship there, and all these changes are being uh, brought about, not simply because I'm trying to earn my way to God, I'm trying to earn favor with God, I want him to be happy with me. No, no, no. It's simply, I love him because I've been loved by him and I experienced that love from him. And now it's, it's just the reaction of my soul. It's the reaction of my heart. I, I want him to continue to change me. And when you're being changed, what happens? Well, then you begin to change others. Because in the history of the world, good news always gets out. You know, you never keep good news to yourself. You always find somebody to tell. And so the question that we bring it back to is how is Jesus changing you? What evidences in your life can you point to and say, man, I'm growing my relationship with Jesus. I'm more grounded in just my identity and who I am. I know it. I have this confidence now that this is who Jesus says I am. Or, you know, I'm living out my purpose now. I know my reason for being. And you know, before I was just kind of going through the motions or whatever felt right in the moment, but now I know this is what life is about. Or, hey, I, I'm just determined to do God's will in my life. I seek it before, you know, just whatever, but now it's God's will. And I have an internal perspective. I realize I'm not an owner of anything. I'm a steward of whatever I've got. What are the evidences that you can point to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good to us. Because, God, you give us an identity. You give us a purpose in life. You, the creator of the world, sovereign over all the universe, you have a will specific for each and every one of us. And, God, that changes our perspective. It changes us from from the temporary and the here and now to an eternal. God, and when we see eternity just crying out in our souls for the soul of humanity, God, we thank you that you're changing us. God, will you continue to change us, your church, to look more and more like your son, Jesus. We recognize that we need your help for that every moment of every day. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.